now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity. So glad to be with you here today. And Reclaiming Authenticity is definitely finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Well, I am here every Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and everywhere else in between. I am Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. That's all one word run together. So www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. And if you would want to be part of today's show, I invite you to call in. Uh, I'm always excited to get uh, uh, listeners who want to call and talk. That number, if you'd like to call in, is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And these uh, broadcasts are now podcasted in case you want to go back and listen again, or you can go back even into our archives and listen to previous shows. And uh, as I said, they are podcasted and they are also available to download on uh, Audible, iTunes, and Amazon Music. Well, happy, happy Friday to one and all. And... Um, uh, for the sake of new listeners out there, I just want to take a moment just to explain exactly what reclaiming reclaiming authenticity is all about. And um, whenever I do that, I always have to place it within a larger context because you see, it really doesn't matter who we are or or where we were born or even to what family we were placed. Ours is a world filled with relationships. Okay, and that's the common denominator. And anything we do, anybody we meet, it always brings us back to the relationships that we establish in and through our lives. And indeed, we are social beings who often spend our lives trying to make sense out of our world by trying to find our place in the world and our place in relation to one another. And so as social creatures, as social beings, it's often within the context of these relationships that we have experienced tremendous pain and suffering. And it's, it seems like it doesn't have to be that way, but it is. So follow me on this, okay? Um, within the context of relationships, we experience pain and suffering. Now, these could be anything from overt acts of, let's say, betrayal or cruelty that somebody has inflicted against us, or maybe we've inflicted it on somebody else, or sometimes we are just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But as a result, many people bear the scars of the physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual woundedness. 
And as I'll be talking about in, in this particular show today, it's basically about finding one's voice and the ability to then share our stories from a place of woundedness or disappointment, but not necessarily there, because as we are healing, we begin to tell those same stories, those same experiences from a place that involves healing and wholeness and peace. Okay, Because just as we experience our woundedness in relationships, it's also within the context of healthy relationships that we can find our healing, our voice, and our authenticity. And now the difficulty is that, or I should say that on the process towards healing, is often finding the courage within ourselves to discover those things which have always been in ourselves. And every time I, I think about this, and this is actually where I came up with the understanding of reclaiming authenticity, what comes from one of my uh, favorite authors, uh, a favorite quote of mine, uh, or his that I love just to quote, it comes from T.S. Eliot. And he says that we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring, we'll be arrived to where we have started and know it for the very first time. So whenever we turn inward, and whenever we have the courage to look at anything and everything within ourselves, and you know these, these gifts, these graces, these skills, and this uniqueness that we've come into the world with, yeah, we discover new things about us. And we come back to the place where we have started, but yet we're seeing it perhaps for the very first time, because we're now understanding it from a different point of view or in a different light of things. Because I'm a firm believer that we all come into this world with everything that we need, not just for ourselves, but also for others, but also through our various experiences and, and some unfortunate events we believe that we had to have given away parts of ourselves, uh, if not the whole of ourselves, of that uniqueness or that thisness, that's that what's special about us, in order to survive whatever we have gone through. And this could be something um, such as we didn't feel as though we lived up uh, to another person's expectation of us. And therefore, we kept trying and trying and trying, and we kept failing and failing. And the more we did that, we just realized we don't even know ourselves after a while. And so who are we? Okay. Or maybe we have even got a glimpse of that uniqueness of who we are, and but we ended up hiding it from somebody else in order to survive an abuse or some other um, hateful experience. Or perhaps, you know, those aspects of ourselves might have just been taken away from us, or we've handed them over. We surrendered those things because we didn't have the strength to fight for them or to hang on to them. Okay, but really, they didn't go anywhere. We've pushed them down, or we've hidden them, or we you may even hidden them from not just somebody else, but also from ourselves. But either way, when we become aware that we've done these things, we also realize it does take tremendous courage then to go in and reclaim who we already are. It creates this awareness in us to realize, like, 
you know, just because I've gone through some horrific things or gone through some like eh, things I don't want to go through again, that's not the end all be all to us. There is a whole lot more. Okay, And when we're able to reclaim our voice, our uniqueness, as it were, we are going to quickly discover that as we tell these stories, we're now telling them, you know, um, and we're telling them from a place that has been transformed in us. We're going to tell, you know, these stories from a place of healing or a voice of wholeness and gratitude. Okay. Well, I'll be taking your calls in the second half of the show today, and I encourage you to call in because I really want to get your opinion or your heart's attitude on today's subject, the multifactual grace for our hidden scars. Okay, And I want to start today just by telling you a pretty familiar ancient story. Okay, It's a story about a, a bereaved mother who brought her dead child to a holy man to be healed. And, um, you know, she begged the master to have pity on her, and she brought alms and everything and, and return her child to life. Well, after some time, the master spoke, and he agreed to do so, but only if she would first bring him a mustard seed from a house in her village where death or pain and suffering had not been. Well, initially, uh, this woman was so excited because this request from the master seemed so simple. And she thought, surely there, there has to be at least one house where I live where death and pain and suffering has not visited. So she quickly, you know, comes down from the mountain and she arrives at the first house and she knocks on the door and she asked if they had any mustard seeds for her. And she was delighted when she heard that they had plenty to give her. However, when she told them that the mustard seeds had to come from a household where death and pain and suffering had not visited, they couldn't help her. In fact, they went on to tell her that they did bury their father the year before. Well, she was disappointed, yet she was still hopeful, and this woman moved to a second house and asked if they could give her mustard seeds. And again, the family inside had plenty of seeds to give her, but when she heard that they too buried a loved one, she couldn't accept the seeds. And on and on and on, the woman went from house to house searching for a family who had been spared from suffering, pain, and death. But to her dismay, she didn't find one. So eventually, she came to understand the wisdom of the Master, that death and pain and suffering come to all. And so... Silently, she left the village and went back up the mountain, and she returned to claim her child's body and returned home to bury him in peace. Well, you know, these days, one of the things I find most disappointing uh, whenever I listen to expert panels who report on the opioid crisis in America 
Um, it's just something that I, I'm always anticipating, you know, is there something new that I need to understand about this? Or is there, or we can really get to the heart of the matter. And the panels are, are very good at informing, of, okay, exactly where are the hot spots throughout the state or throughout the region or throughout the country. But I still feel like they're, they're missing something. Well, I live in a region of the country where the opioid crisis is going strong, okay? And I have sat in audiences listening to members of the medical community, and, and I listen to them talk about numbers and costs and death rates and other socioeconomic impacts. And, and still, what I have yet to hear uh, anybody talk about or anybody raise the question or to anybody even answer is this. What kind of pain are people in that they turn to opioids in the first place? What's the pain that people are in that they turn to opioids to find their healing, their peace? You know, they're just to be out of pain. And not just on a scale of a one to ten level of pain, um, but what is that underlying deep, deep, deep pain that people believe opioids will assuage, that opioids will heal, that opioids will quiet. Because you think about it, this is the real issue that a person faces when he or she is recovering from an opioid addiction. Yes, it is to be is it is to rebuild a life that has been saved by going to rehab, definitely. But it also includes exploring the life experiences by which a person's pain came to be. And when we think about levels of pain, I mean, we, we think about different aspects or different characteristics of pain. And just, um, you know, because we are body, mind, spirit, there are just many, many, many levels of pain. And, you know, here are the, the, uh, the four that are you know, talked about the most. There is somatic pain. And this kind of pain occurs that whenever, you know, our pain receptors in our tissues, such as like the skin or muscles or skeleton muscles, uh, joints and connected tissues, when these pain receptors are activated, this is, it's pain in the body. And typically, um, you know, there's, there's other stimuli that get these pain receptors going, such as force or temperature or vibration or swelling, you know, just really activate these receptors. And people often describe this kind of pain as cramping and gnawing and, and so forth. So that's, that's somatic pain, just to put it in a little nutshell here. But there's another type of pain. Uh, there's visceral pain that comes from our internal organs. And the, the most uh, common cause of, of visceral pain will include like inflammation or even menstrual cramps and swelling and even stretching of the organs. And then we come to neuropathic pain. And this is the kind of pain that's caused by a damage or an injury to the nerves that transfer information between the brain and the spinal cord from, let's say, the skin, the muscles, and other parts of the body. And this pain, as most people describe, is like a burning sensation. And affected areas are often very sensitive to the touch. 
And the most common causes for neuropathic pain is actually divided into these categories, such as a disease or injury, infection, and a loss of limb. Well, I remember years and years ago, I ran across uh, just some very groundbreaking work by a Dr. Eric Linderman, and uh, he was the uh, attending physician on at, or he was he worked at Massachusetts General Hospital, in uh, around 19 early 40s, and so, and he was known for treating people for ulcerative colitis. And, you know, he was asked, like, well, what's the cause of all this? You know, all these people have stomach problems and inflammations and so forth. And he simply replied that he was helping grieving people, you know, and, and just helping these patients readjust to, you know, the losses that they had of loved ones. And then, ironically, about nine, ten months later, Lindemann, um, he was also treating, you know, people who had lost loved ones in the famous Coconut Grove nightclub fire. And he was, you know, he just sat and he observed the grief reactions of those who had lost loved ones in this huge fire. And he saw the same ulcerative colitis symptoms from people who had lost loved ones in the fire, but were never able to grieve loved ones who died in the fire. And this, you know, he went on to publish the paper and spoke on this, and he was the first one to link, you know, whenever we have such horrific kinds of losses, it's going to affect us physically. And then from there, other studies followed. And But this was groundbreaking work because nobody up to this time was pointing this out. And this leads us into what's really important when it comes to our, our losses, our pain and our suffering. It's, you know, understanding the differences between our wounds and our scars. And I'll say more about that coming up. But there's also another phenomenon out there regarding pain called total pain, which captures more of a multifactual pain and suffering that people experience. And um, I'm sure you've heard of her name, but Dame Cicely Saunders. She was the one who championed the uh, hospice movement and ultimately uh, the present-day understanding of palliative care. And she defined the concept of total pain as the suffering that includes all of a person's physical, psychological, social, spiritual, and practical struggles. And again, <clears throat> groundbreaking because nobody else was pointing this out. And according to Cecily Saunders, there are multiple facets of pain that can all manifest itself in the form of, let's say, physical pain. You know, there's, there's psychological pain. You know, with people who are facing death, they might uh, ask questions like, well, well, what does death feel like? Will it hurt? Um, you know, what do I do about this anxiety? I, I, I'm not getting enough sleep or rest or something. And then she also says there's spiritual pain, you know, associated with this. Is like, what are my beliefs about the afterlife? Is there an afterlife? What does that look like? And, and am I ready to die? You know, have I done all that I can in this earthly life with what I think is my purpose? And then there's also, she says, social pain, you know, and questions are raised around, let's say, finances. Uh, 
You know, are all my finances in in order? And will my family be taken care of after I'm gone? Have I made amends with all my family members and friends? And who's going to take over the care of my pets or my children? Or who's going to carry on the work and so forth? Well, according to uh, Jamie Wilson, she's a certified nurse practitioner. She, I read an article of hers this week, and uh, she says that, you know, as we all know, pain is what the patient says it is. But that doesn't always mean it's physical pain. And it's time for us to dig a little deeper and bring the true, meaningful aid to the patient, no matter their current physical state. Or, in other words, listen to one another. Listen to the words of someone. Listen to the metaphors. Listen to the images. Listen to the silences in between the words, because these are just as important in understanding who a person is and what they have experienced in this life. Well, for me, it you know this concept of you know taking time to really listen and to listen to what's really important actually came together uh, when I was seventeen years old. You know, and and uh, you know just makes total sense now in hindsight. Then, um, you know, I'm looking at the scar on my left thumb. And um, like I said, I was 17 at the time, and I was working on a, a mock roofing project, which was designed to teach us how to shingle a roof properly. Okay. And I was part of a, like a four-member team, and but it was my task to cut smaller sections of shingles so that they would fit at the end of each row. Okay. And it was about an hour before quitting time, and of course, with most avoidable accidents, I was in a hurry to finish the job. I wanted to get home, okay? And so with my straight edge in one hand and my utility knife in the other, I began to score the section that needed cut. And if you've ever had to cut shingles before, you know you just have to score it several times. Well, I think it was on the fourth pass of my knife that seemed to get duller and duller with each passing, the knife seemed to jump across the straight edge and across my left thumb. And I ended up, you know, finishing the day in the emergency room, getting seven stitches for my haste. And reflecting on that experience has taught me a lot about that natural progression of recovering from painful experiences. Because whenever I was cut, I experienced the excruciating pain of a fresh wound. And in the days that followed, whenever I accidentally bumped my thumb, the pain in the blood reminded me that although the wound was stitched, healing was still a long way off. So now, like I said, decades later, you know, I'm still reminded of that day, not because of the pain, but because of the scar. All of us have scars from previous wounds. You know, some are more obvious than others, such as a wound from, let's say, surgery or even a wound that we received from an accident. Other scars, however, are not so obvious. You know, these scars resulting from certain emotional and spiritual wounds are often kept hidden deep within our hearts and our souls. <clears throat> we rarely permit others to see these wounds or let alone touch them because we were never healed from them. 
I mean, some wounds are still fresh, even from five or 10 or 15 or more years ago. And in these incidences, let's say an emotional scar has never formed because we've never allowed the healing process to take place. Because let's say we're constantly poking at the wound where we're scratching open the, um, you know, the scab and reliving the painful memories all over again. And despite our mother's warnings that, you know, it'll never heal unless you stop picking at it, we still apply, you know, these temporary band-aids of prescription or illegal drugs and alcohol, or we might slide into a repression or a denial or some other sedating relief. Well, the same process could be said regarding finding healing from, let's say, emotional wounds of loss and grief. Well, there's still a common misunderstanding out there in society that once we have assimilated our losses, we'll never go back, you know, to where we were before the loss. You know, uh, we, we think we can always go back to our original emotional and spiritual state. You know, but this return to the way things were rarely happens. Instead, we're constantly shaped and changed by our losses. And again, once we have experienced a loss or once we've experienced a pain or affliction in our life, our outlook on life is forever altered by that, that, that pain and that grief that we sustain. And the reason for this is because our assumptions about life and the world in which we live have now been challenged, if not shattered. We've become accustomed to the routines which define our daily existence. And, And furthermore, we will never see ourselves and others or the world the same as what we once did, because we're being pulled into the task of trying to make sense out of new circumstances in the light of old. And yet, instead of assimilating our losses into our everyday lives, many people resist this healing by continuing to live in a prison of bitterness, which is reinforced by familiar patterns of, let's say, abuse or low self-esteem or feelings of unworthiness or contempt or jealousy or etc. But instead of looking for the potential of being made better, By our pain and our losses, we allow bitterness to harden our hearts and to keep others out, all the while we cement that anguish inside. Well, the challenge then is for us to discover that courage to redefine ourselves in light of our pain and grief. But still, we are compelled to ask this question throughout the whole process. Is this assimilation process something we're able to do on our own? Or do we need help from others? Well, today, whenever I look at my thumb, I see more than just a scar, more than just a reminder of a painful time in my past. But I also see a thumbprint, you know, something we all have in common. You know, no two thumbprints are alike. You know, and thumbprints are what identify us as unique among other characteristics. And these prints are one of the most distinguishable parts of our bodies. And uh, hospital records, uh, you know, demonstrate that when, you know, this is the way to identify newborns and their mothers and newborns and their fathers and so forth. And certain jobs require applicants to get fingerprinted prior to employment. 
And even people who have been arrested have their prints taken as a matter of legal record. And all in all, our fingerprints can tell a lot about us. Well, so do our scars. They identify what wounds we have suffered as a result of the past. Accidents, mistakes, surgeries, and unfortunate mishaps of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the same could be said for the times in which we are faced with bereavement. I mean, we all experience loss and grief throughout our lives. But just as no two thumbprints are alike, so too do no two people grieve in the same manner or react similarly to the parts of that loss experience. Well, after the break, we're going to take a look at uh, another dimension of our pain that takes Cicely Saunders' work and her understanding of total pain. And we're going to take that to another dimension. We're going to take it much, much deeper. And, and that is, how can we express and heal from pain that is so deep, so intense at times, that even words cannot touch it? Well, I'd really love to hear your heart and your opinions on these matters. So again, if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. And as I said, I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Halk. I'll see you back here in one minute. Welcome back, everybody. As you heard, I'm Dr. James Hawk, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, I uh, just want to say a quick word about next week's show. It's Friday, October the 29th, and that, that's the weekend we're going to be coming into Halloween. So all kinds of stories and so forth. And um, still working on the, the idea, still working on the concept, so I'm going to let it be a mystery. But uh, again, going to have a great show lined up with many things that we can uh, talk about and explore. Um, so again, I just invite you to tune in next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. Or again, you're also invited to uh, download the podcast and listen to them at uh, another time that's more convenient for you. Well, earlier in the show, I was talking about a phenomenon called total pain, which captures more of a multifactual pain and suffering that people experience. 
And it was through the work of Dame Cecily Saunders, who, as I said, championed the hospice movement and ultimately this present-day understanding of palliative care, pain management. When defined, she defined the, the, the concept of total pain as suffering that includes all of a person's physical, psychological, social, spiritual, and practical struggles. Well, there is another dimension of humanity's pain that is so deep, so intense, that we cannot give it a language. We just do not have the words that can be able to describe that. Well, in the Korean language, in the Korean experience and Korean culture, there is a word called han, H-A-N, han. And it's the kind of pain that's reinforced by, let's say, uh, stigma and shame. It's the kind of pain that keeps a person, even many generations to come, down and in their so-called places. Well, I've also heard it said that Han is a feeling of unresolved resentment against injustices suffered. Uh, But it also includes a sense of helplessness because of the overwhelming odds against the person, or a feeling of acute pain way, way, way deep inside one's bowels, you know, making the whole body kind of writhe and squirm, and and just this obstinate urge to take revenge and to right the wrong. And it's all of these and so much, much more. <clears throat> well, others have also defined this word Han as uh, this mixture of sorrow with this resentment, but it also includes the little tinges of hope within the sadness and anger. And interestingly, the Korean definition of Han really didn't exist until the Japanese occupation of the Korean Peninsula. But this word became popular to describe this shared suffering of the Korean people under oppression and occupation. And in all honesty, Han is not something that you can define, but rather it's something that you feel. It's a a Korean feeling of sorrow, oppression, or unavenged injustice. And in isolation, that doesn't really have an American or an English equivalent, should I say. And it's this continuous or relentless anguish of a whole group of people, especially those who are considered powerless and vulnerable. And one example of this would be that another group of people or another power comes in and erases everything, a language, a culture, an identity. And as a result, people often live their lives then in quiet solitude with with hopelessness or despair because let's say they've never been given the permission to express their pain or their grief. But, you know, we can find comfort in that when, whenever we're in a state of suffering that takes us to the point of having no words for it, the cry of our soul is heard above everything else. 
There's even a passage in scripture that reminds us that matter, you know, no matter what level of dimension our pain is, we're never beyond the reach of God's grace and healing and everlasting love. And the passage I'm I'm thinking of here is uh, the eighth chapter of Romans, where Paul writes, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Because you see, there will come a day when we will be able to put words to our pain and to make sense of it. We will find our voice to give permission for others to find their voice. And down through the centuries, you've heard me talk about this many times on this show. Down through the centuries, society has displayed a pattern of wanting to silence people, you know, and their pain. You know, just all the atrocities that humanity has done against another and trying to just uh, disrupt the lives of others and wipe out uh, generations or groups of people because they didn't live up to a so-called standard. But People are being silent no more. It's interesting, the the writer Dorothy Soli says that suffering that cannot be expressed is suffering that cannot be healed. And nowadays, people are being empowered to share their stories and to share their pain and to share their voices, to be an advocate for others who have yet to find their voice. And this is, I, I believe, you know, just deep in my heart, this is the next wave that's coming. You know, you can call it a revival, you can call it another great awakening, whatever you want to call it. This is something that is is changing the landscape of society, because silence is now not being tolerated, I should say. People are raising their voices. People are speaking out. People are being empowered in ways in which they never have before. And there's not one thing that a society can do about it. You know, the days of, well, we'll just take care of that person and we'll silence them and that'll be that. Those days are gone. You know, it's, it's you know, society still might want to run that playbook, but, you know, even when the most intense suffering has incurred, the most intense revivals have happened. You know, just a greater awakening has emerged as a result because of this refusal of the cry of the soul to be silenced because it simply cannot be. Well, many, many years ago, probably several decades now, I I met uh, Ken Doka, uh, he was a professor at the College of New Rochelle in Bronx, New York. And um, interesting college in and of itself, but, but uh, he and I met over lunch to discuss uh, this disenfranchisement of people who suffer. And in particular, we got on the subject of disenfranchised grief. And uh, disenfranchised grief can be pretty much summed up as this that while most people who mourn the loss of a loved one are free to experience normal grief reactions, others whose loved ones carry a social stigma are not given the right, the role, or the capacity to grieve as others may. 
And added to this, these mourners are often given little or no social or religious support to help facilitate their grief. And I, I remember asking uh, uh, Ken Doka, you know, like, well, how can this be? Like, where, where does this really come from? And, um, you know, since he was the expert on this subject, I, I went straight to the horse's mouth, so to speak. And he says, you know, this, this reaction from society, you know, actually comes from, you know, these factors. He says, one, you know, the relationship to a deceased loved one is not recognized, such as it, it may have been a partner or, you know, LGBTQ, or um, it could have been, you know, uh, you know, from a previous marriage or a divorce or something like that. Or he says also the, the loss itself is not recognized or maybe it's not even viewed by society as being significant, such as a, a prenatal death or the, the loss of a pet. Now, I have to say, in all fairness, uh, Hallmark is getting better at these. Um, you know, they have more and more, um, you know, sympathy cards for the loss of a pet or loss of a child, uh, loss of an infant, whether it be through SIDS or a stillbirth or a miscarriage. And so society is slowly getting better at that. At, uh, but he went on to say that, you know, the third reason that society reacts this way is because it made the survivor is perceived by society as not having the capacity to mourn. Such as, well, the children are too small, we don't want to frighten them, or, well, she's 83 years old, she's not going to remember anyway. But again, you hear that, that stigma by society. It's like, who decides who's not ready to handle something? And then he said, lastly, which really got us to the heart of the matter, he says, you know, there are certain types of death, you know, such as people who committed suicide or even AIDS-related or some other stigmatized illness, which may be too embarrassing or can even produce this heightened anxiety in members of society. And yet, if we think about it, once we're able to comprehend that death is real and that someday we too shall die, despite how difficult that may be for us, <clears throat> when we um, have this realization, our worldview is going to change. You know, it, it changes from this naive innocence of life and pleasure and being cared for to now shifting to a realization that we must confront our own sickness, our own aging, our death. We have to confront our mortality. And this is always, always changing. Every day we have to be able to do this. Well, one of my favorite books is about an ancient story told of the spiritual journey of an Indian man named Siddhartha. Uh, and he lived during the time of the Buddha. And within Buddhism, there is a belief that there is nothing fixed or permanent in this world. In other words, everything and everyone is subject to change. Or as the Buddha taught, it's in this continuous becoming. And we refer to this continuous becoming as impermanence. And if you've ever sat beside a river and watched its flow, you get the idea Okay, because the water runs from point to point around rocks and fallen branches, and it often you know, finds the, the way of le least resistance. And yet at the same time, the river is not one continuous united flow. 
I mean, the, the river of this moment is not going to be the same as the river of the next moment, you know, and, and hence comes the saying from the ancient philosopher Heraclitus, you cannot step into the same river twice for the waters are ever flowing onto you. And this, this philosophy, we can certainly apply to our lives even today. That none of us remained the same throughout our years. Oh, okay, we may think that we're not changing, but come on, we are. In the various stages of our lives, you know, we go from infancy, toddlerhood, childhood, to adulthood, to old age. Uh, you know, it's, it's just not the same at any given time. You know, and, and the child is not the same when he or she grows up and becomes a young adult, nor when he or she grows up and is, is elderly. And, and while it's true that we live, you know, from moment to moment, day to day, we tend to forget that each moment leads us to the next moment, or each day leads us to the next day. And so this, this idea of impermanence and change, you know, are, are just two undeniable truths of our existence. Well, there are ancient scriptures out there uh, besides the Bible, the Upanishads, uh, which are actually are the final part of the Vedas uh, or, or Vedanta philosophy. And um, I think there's over a hundred of them, but they contain verse, you know, both verses and prose and they vary in length. Okay. And they were written somewhere between like 800 and 300, you know, BC. And, um, the the name Katha, as one of the uh, Upanishads, the Katha Upanishad, is a term which means narration, referring to uh, a narrative, a fable, or a parable. And uh, the Katha Upanishad, you know, describes this spiritual journey of a young boy who he was just so devoted to self-knowledge. You know, in other words, after stripping away all of the worldly trappings. He really wanted to discover, you know, the nature of who he truly is, you know, just who am I? But he just wasn't convinced. He wanted more. He wanted more. And so he argued with his father <laughs> quite a bit to allow him to visit Yama or what is considered the god of death. And when uh, uh, Nachiketas entered the house of death, this young boy Yama was nowhere to be found. And, you know, in ancient culture, he was not shown hospitality as any house guest would be given. And this oversight was considered a huge slap in the face. It was just a huge disgrace. Um, you know, because the, the teaching was that whenever a spiritual guest enters a house, like a bright flame, he has to be well received and, and bring water to wash his feet and um, you know, and far from wise are those who are not hospitable to such a guest, for they will lose all their hopes, their religious merit that they have acquired, and they will lose their sons and their cattle, and so on and so forth. So this is a pretty big deal, okay? But um, uh, in time, you know, Yama returned and discovered hospitality was not shown to his guest. And of course, he was embarrassed. And he said, you know, let me make it up to you. Therefore, I'm going to grant you, Nachiketa, three boons or three wishes. And so <clears throat> Nachiketa goes, you know, he said, I'll think about it. I'll come back here. And his, uh, you know, third wish 
that he had to Yama was about the understanding of what happens to the soul after death. And when Yama heard this wish, you know, he he tried to avoid fulfilling it. But, um, you know, and he just resisted trying to answer this question. And so he asked Nachiketa to think of some, think of another boon, you know, come up with another wish here. Okay, just let's go with something else. But Nachiketa's was firm in his desire to know the truth. And so he didn't give up. But still, Yama tried to persuade him. And he said, he said to Nachiketa, he said, look, ask for sons and grandsons who will live a hundred years. Ask me for herds of cattle, elephants and horses, gold and vast land. And ask me to live as long as you desire. Or if you can think of anything more desirable, ask for that. Why don't you ask for wealth and, and a long life as well? Be the ruler of a great kingdom, and I'll give you the utmost capacity to enjoy all the pleasures of life. Ask for beautiful women, uh, you know, whose loveliness was rarely seen on the earth. Ask for riding in chariots and ask to be skilled in music. Um, but Nachiketa, please don't ask me about the secret of death. But Nachiketis, well, he was an awakened soul. He knew that all the treasures of the world are temporary. And a wise person will always choose the eternal good, but the foolish one will only chase after those earthly things that will never satisfy this cry of the soul. And as a result, the fear of death was gone in Nachiketa. There was nothing that Yama could do to instill a gripping fear into him. Now, not that we're going to be spared from aging or sickness and death, but by knowing these things, we are then compelled to live our lives in quality relationships, you know, and, and you know, allow that those relationships to lift up one another. And, and encourage them and empower others to discover those things in themselves. Kind of reminds me of the time when, um, you know, Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, you know, with all the worldly pleasures and pursuits, you know. And I will give you wealth, Jesus. I'll give you lavish food. I'll give you unlimited power. You know, and each time Jesus comes back and just says, uh, no, I don't think so. You know, and it's almost his response, you know, Jesus said to Satan, you, you don't get it, do you? You really have nothing to tempt me with. And because once Nachiketa realized these things, death no longer had power over anyone. You see, and, and here's the lesson for us, that whenever we know how to die, then we know how to live. We're awakened to cherish every day, every hug, every kiss, every relationship. For these things cannot be replaced. When we know how to die, we know how to live. And all in all, this Katha Upanishad is about overcoming death by understanding it and learning from it. You know, immortality cannot be reached without understanding mortality. Because death is here to teach us a lesson, to let us know that we cannot take our lives for granted and we cannot be overly attached to things. The same is true with different dimensions of our pain, especially pain that we cannot give a voice to.
especially pain that we struggle with to put words to. We don't have to live in despair. We don't have to live in hopelessness because God understands levels of pain. There is no amount of suffering on this earth that is beyond the grace of God. There's nothing that we experience in our life that in which it is out of reach of God's everlasting love. And even if we don't have words for that type of pain and suffering that we experience, that's okay. The cry of the soul speaks the same language as the soul of God. Another aspect that we can also learn from the Katha Upanishad is that we, you know, just forget about bargaining with death, you know, but when we make peace with it, you know, we, we, you know, see it for what it is. And yes, there will become, there will be a time when we're going to be separated, but are we truly separated from one another? Since we have this blood soul connection with each other, with our loved ones. In the words of Tuesday with Maury, you know, he said that, uh, look, death ends a life, but it doesn't end a relationship. And that's the power right there, relationship. Society has such potential to be a great healing force in the lives of people, but yet it often turns out to be the worst enemy of people who suffer or are in pain, especially from losses or pain that carry a social stigma. Well, our whole purpose is then to understand our existence and to see how we may use these opportunities to not just broaden our knowledge, you know, but um, to look for ways in which we can free others as well, to sit with them, listen to their words, listen to the metaphors, like I said, listen to the images, listen for what's not being said, because that's powerful in and of itself. One of the things which was taught to me early on, early, early, early on in uh, the good old college days was to never take anything for granted but to always cherish everything. And as I've gotten older and as I've um, you know, been reminded of this time and time again, is just to realize that there's this tremendous sense of peace that comes from living in gratitude or a place of gratitude. And I believe I shared with this audience once before that um, uh, probably last month or two months ago, uh, sitting around um, with my friends and, of course, the question was tossed out, you know, hey, would you want to go back and do, you know, your uh, high school all over again, knowing that what you know now? And would you make your decisions completely different? And uh, I was tempted to say, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that because, you know, high school was, oof. It was rough, and I, I barely got out the first time. But you know, I caught myself, and I just, I just thought about it, and I said, you know what? No, I think I'd want to keep things the same way. Even though it was painful, it was frustrating, it was agonizing, all that. You know, because the decisions I made 
and the experiences that I have have just brought me to this very moment. And this is something, you know, that is very eye-opening when it comes to living in gratitude, is to understand, yeah, where we have been, the decisions that we have made, the experiences that we have enjoyed or not, everything has brought us to this very moment. And these are the things that we can reclaim in us as we are reminded that everything is, is a teaching. Everything is a reminder. Everything points us to the soul of God. Well, I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, I invite you to tune in uh, next Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Time, or catch the broadcast on one of the podcast stations. And until then, would everybody please be safe, uh, please be aware of those around you, uh, listen carefully to one another's stories, and by all means, behave yourselves. Take care. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.